So, I went ahead and I did what many of you are asking and assuming, and uh, I did find a way to fold Easter Sunday into April Fool's Day a little bit, all right? Um, Now, somebody in here is going to be disappointed in me that I'm not going to do a joke right now. Uh, Somebody wanted me to pretend that all I was going to say was Jesus died and rose again, which is all I should need to say, and yet I'm going to say a whole lot more as we look at God's Word But if I was to do that right now, and I'm just going to use this hypothetically instead of doing it, if I was to help hypothetically come up here and preach for two minutes, tell you have a great Easter and I left the stage, many of you would be surprised uh, because that's not normal. You'd be caught off guard. Some of you might be happy, I'm sure. Uh, Some of you uh, would be like, this isn't what we're supposed to, we, we need to be here longer. What's going on? Uh, But the idea would be that there would be an element of surprise. You were expecting one thing and got a different thing. And so if that was to happen today, many of you would be left kind of confused and not really sure what to do. Do we leave? Do we stay? And then if I was to come out and say, April Fools, you guys would be like, oh, okay, I get it, great, let's let's go, go forward. And we could do that, but that wouldn't have any impact if you guys were expecting it. Like if you got a memo this week saying, just so you know, Pastor Ken's only going to be preaching for two minutes this week then you guys, it wouldn't have caught you off the guard. You wouldn't have thought it was, it was that strange. You would have thought it was strange when you got the memo, but it wouldn't have been strange the day of. I was thinking about April Fool's jokes, and this is the essence of them, that you need, in order for an April Fool's joke to truly be effective, uh, you need the element of surprise. But you need the element also of doing something that is unexpected. Coming into a situation in which the, the normal is what would be changed. You see, any time that a a practical joke or an April Fool's joke is seen ahead of time, it doesn't end up being a joke because the person knows it's coming. That's the whole point. You can't have a a good April Fool's or a good practical joke on anyone if they don't don't have some preconceived expectation that is broken or shattered. And now, somebody a couple weeks ago said, are we going to say that uh, Jesus' coming was the first April Fool's joke. I won't say that, but what I will say, in a sense of how an an April April Fool's joke is something that is unexpected, and that is where the impact and the power lies, in the same way, when Jesus comes into the scene, I would say in a very real sense, what he is and what he becomes and what we see of him in Scripture is what was unexpected by the world that was waiting for him. That the world had an expectation, that they knew what they wanted in the coming king. Specifically, we talk about the Jewish people. And we could spend all morning looking to the Old Testament. And the Jewish people had a certain idea of what the Messiah, the king that would be the savior of the world, would be. That he would, as we looked at last week on Palm Sunday, that he would be a king that would destroy Rome, that would, that would rule over all, and that the Jewish nation would be able to be free from oppressors forever and that Jesus would rule on a physical throne as their physical king and lead them to be the nation above all nations. Anyone else who would be looking and thinking, well, what if I was going to have, if there was a king that was going to come to this world, the king of this world, well, that king better be somebody who's high and mighty. That king better be somebody that, that comes in in a blaze of glory. And see, when Jesus comes onto the scene, and we know this happens, we celebrate this on Christmas, I know it's Easter, when Jesus comes as a baby in a stable in the lowly city of Bethlehem, that is not the way a king was seen to be coming. 
And so in a very real sense, when Jesus comes to this earth, when he came and he lived and he died and he resurrected, and we'll talk about all that today, it was an unexpected thing. And in a way, a practical joke, not a joke, obviously, it's not funny, but in a way, a practical joke was played on this world who was expecting one thing and got another. And so that leads us to the place where we are today. And because the world was not expecting who Jesus is and who Jesus was and who Jesus will be, therefore, there is an idea that Easter, that Jesus, that the whole story that we celebrate this week, that we've been talking about since last Sunday, is nothing but foolishness. And they would say that the April Fools, the world would say that the April Fools that are really April Fools are we are he, us here we here however you say that as christians in 1 corinthians 1:18 this is going to be our key verse after i read this key verse we're going to read all of 1 corinthians 1 and we're going to go up through chapter 2 verse 2 but if you want to just read with me in 1 corinthians 1:18 it's on your notes if you have those in front of you if you haven't opened your bible yet and this verse says this for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness, as many translations say, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is going to be our theme verse. And if your translation says folly here, the the definition of folly that the word that's being used here is contemptible and foolish, unworthy of belief. So the world that is perishing, the ones who don't understand who Jesus is, they're going to look at his message, they're going to look at the cross, they're going to look at Jesus, and they're going to see foolishness. They're going to see folly. But to us who understand who Jesus is, we understand what he's done. Those who have been saved, it is the power of God. We learned a lot about the power of God this morning if you were here for our sunrise service. That the power of God we can't even fathom. And that power was seen in a very real way in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we understand the power that God has brought through Jesus and yet the world will look at it as foolishness. The people around us who don't know Jesus will see it as folly. And that is the theme, the key as we go forward now in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to start with. We're going to read... Uh, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 2. And as always, as we understand, Paul is writing this letter to a church who desperately needs to understand what following Jesus is really all about. In verse 17, this is what he writes to the Corinthians. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not... did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As we look at this passage, we will uncover and look at what it is that means that the cross is foolishness to those who don't know Jesus And so the first thing we're going to look at is what is the message of foolishness? What is the message that is seen as foolish? And so what we've just read here in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 2, 2, we first of all see right off the bat as Paul is writing, he says this message is none other than what we see in verse 17, that he is there to preach the gospel. The gospel is foolishness to the world. The good news that was meant to come to a world that was full of bad news of sin and destruction and evil. The good news that came through Jesus Christ to those who are perishing and to those who haven't experienced what that good news means. They look at that good news, they look at the gospel and they say it's foolish to believe. That indeed it is contemptible and unworthy of belief. And that's what many will say, but let's take a minute to look at the what is the gospel? We come to Easter and we think about the resurrection of Jesus, and it's important that we remember that he came back to life, but the things that happened before then are vital to understanding who Jesus is and what the gospel truly is. In, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians, Paul starts by talking about the gospel. He starts talking about how important the gospel is. In this first chapter, he says that the gospel is foolishness. Then he goes through the whole book, and the last, one of the last two chapters of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he comes to the point where he gives them, you can't ask for anything more, you will see what he says is the most core thing of the gospel. As we get to the core of the gospel, you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. The first thing we see both in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that two times Paul writes that the cross is the message. Then he writes that the Christ crucified is the message. And we also see this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Except that I might be off. I am wrong. It's 3. Why did I say 8? All right, I'm sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
1 through 8. We're not starting in 8, we're starting in 1. All right, here we go. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which was received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And I'm going to stop there. We could keep reading But what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what the gospel is. It's alluded to in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians when Paul mentions the cross and he mentions Jesus being crucified. And so we see the first point of the gospel is that Christ was crucified. Christ was crucified. You can't miss that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 17 and 18, it says, it talks about the cross. In verses 23 and then chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about preaching Jesus as crucified. The fact that Jesus was crucified is part of the good news. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read why this is good news. And he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The crucifixion of Jesus is not just a message of, yeah, this guy, he he died on a cross. Other people died on a cross. There were two thieves on either side of Christ that died on a cross. There were numbers and numbers, I don't even know how many, of people in uh, in the Roman era who would have been crucified. It's not just about the fact that some man died on the cross. His death for our sins... When he died on that cross, it was for you, it was for me. Because we know that he was sent to earth as a baby, as we already talked about, to live on this earth, to live a perfect life, to show what it means to follow God with his whole heart. He grew up, he did that, he served, he ministered to people, he showed what love really looks like, he showed what a servant leader looks like, he showed what a follower of God should look like and through his life he showed that perfectly and in all of that he was still hated by those who were scared of the power that he would possess and he then was crucified on a cross not because of anything he did wrong he wasn't like one of the thieves he wasn't like someone else who had been executed for a crime Jesus had done nothing wrong and yet because of fear and unbelief people put him on the cross, and he died. But here's the thing. Jesus, as we looked at this morning, he, didn't, he wasn't put on the cross by men. Yes, they had a part in it, but ultimately he gave his own life up. Because he was God and man at the same time. And he lived the perfect life because he was the God-man. And he died for us. In his flesh he died. He was God and he was perfect. He gave himself up so that what we couldn't do, we couldn't pay for our sins. The times we've gone against God, the times we've said, I'm going to do things my way, not your way. The times that we've done things that we know would not please God and it would be hateful and hurtful to God and to others. When we've sinned and done those things, we deserve a punishment that is to be separated from God forever. That is what all of us deserve And without this message of foolishness, without this message of the gospel, this is what we would get. 
But the message of the gospel starts by saying Jesus was crucified. That he died for your sins and for my sins. He took that punishment. He had no sin to pay for. So instead of paying for his own, he paid for ours. So that if we would come to him in faith and accept that sacrifice on our behalf, if we would come to him and say, Jesus, I honor you for what you've done and I accept that sacrifice, that our sins too can be forgiven and that we don't have to be separated from God forever. But the gospel doesn't stop there. In 1 Corinthians 15, we continue to read. And it says, and that he was buried. You know, you look at this and think, oh, what? okay, he died, so he was buried. What's the big deal? He was buried. It means he was dead. Some people will say that Jesus never really died on the cross. That's not true. He died, and so therefore he was buried. He was put in the tomb. He was dead. But then we see this, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's what we get to come together today to remember, to celebrate, that it didn't stop with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Because you know what? That wouldn't have done anything in and of itself. Because although the penalty had been paid, death and sin still had to be defeated. And Jesus, when he rose again, said, because I am God, I can defeat sin, I can defeat death, and therefore those who believe in me can also defeat sin and death. That they can have eternal life. That they can be with me so that they can have victory through me. And ultimately, if Jesus can rise again physically and he can resurrect physical life, then he can also resurrect anyone's spiritual life. No matter where you are today, no matter how far you've gone away from God, no matter where you find yourself, even in the depths of despair, the power of Jesus can raise you to new life in him. And so we see that Jesus is crucified. He died for your sins, my sins, so that we can be saved from our sins, so that we can be forgiven. And he rose again to show that sin and death were forever defeated and that we can follow him and we'll have eternal life. That is the promise that is given to us on Easter. That is the promise that is given to us through the gospel. And yet the world looks at this beautiful news that Jesus died and rose again, that Jesus gave his whole life for us. He gave up what was in heaven to come down to earth to die and rise again. And people in this world and people who don't know Jesus will look at this as foolishness. Why? Why would they look at this as foolishness? Well, let's look at our second point and talk about the wisdom of foolishness. This seems like an oxymoron. The wisdom of foolishness. Foolishness and wisdom are two different things, and yet God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. And the world's wisdom is foolishness to God. And so what we're going to do as we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to compare God's wisdom with worldly wisdom. God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And before we get to James and 1 John, I just want to look at 1 Corinthians real quickly. As we look at 1 Corinthians here, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we didn't get there when we read before, but as Paul continues this idea, we skip over a few verses, we get to chapter, or verse 6 in chapter 2. It says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it is obvious that there are two types of wisdom. That wisdom can either come from man and from the world, or wisdom can come from God himself. As we looked at in chapter 1, as we read through that whole chapter, we see that the cross is the wisdom of God, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. We see that as we read through this passage and we understand then that there is a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. That is why the message of the cross is rejected and why the message of the cross is seen as foolish because there's a different understanding of what wisdom really is. So if you'll join me just for a few minutes to look at what the difference is between worldly wisdom and, self, and, 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 and godly wisdom. We're going to start in the book of James. In the book of James chapter 3. In James chapter 3 verses 13... Through 18. Who then is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show by his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is very clear. The world's wisdom is selfish strife. But God's wisdom is selfless peace. You look at this passage and we know it to be true. We can break down this whole passage if we wanted to. That's not our purpose this morning. But we look at the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And it's very obvious that the wisdom of this world is a me first wisdom. And you know this not only from this scripture, but you also know this from experience. Apart from God, this world, what do we have to live for? Well, we only have to live for one thing, and that's ourselves. If we don't have Jesus in our lives, if we don't live for him, then who are we going to live for? Bill said that earlier this morning. We are going to live for ourselves. The wisdom of this world says, look out for number one. The wisdom of this world says, fight for whatever you can get, because this is all you have. You have one life, you live it the way you need to live it, you run over whoever you need to run over. You, need, you get to where you need to get. You get yourself in a position in which you have whatever you want in life. Even the best people that are giving to charities and all those things, if you think about their motivation, it's always to pump themselves up. If, you don't, if you're not living for Jesus, you're only living for yourself. And so, of course, it is foolishness to somebody to see the opposite of this. As James talks about all of these things, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, these are all things that are different. 
These are things that are unexpected. It's weird to live that way. It's foolish to live that way as the world looks at us. As those who don't know Jesus look at us, they see our, if we live in selfless peace the way that James asks us to, and that is what wisdom is, people will see it as foolish because it's unexpected. It's not what the world lives for. One more passage to turn over to in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Although the word wisdom isn't used in this passage, I believe this is John's way of saying similar to things that James just said. But in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, it's this contrast between the world and God. And it says in verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here is the thing that I believe we can glean from this passage. Worldly, world's wisdom is lustful pride, but God's wisdom is godly humility. The world's wisdom is lustful pride, but God's wisdom is godly humility. And what do I mean by this? Well, that verse that we just looked at said, Do not love the things in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The world is all about gimme, gimme, gimme. Get whatever I can, whatever I want, I need to have. The world is wanting what they can't have and doing whatever they can to get it. And when they do get it, they are puffed up with pride about it. Look at me, I've got all the toys I want. Look at me, I've got all the success I ever needed. Look at me this, look at me that. I've got what I need, I've got what I want. That is the world's wisdom. Look around you. Not just making this up. Watch a TV show for 15 minutes. Watch a movie for 10 minutes. You'll see that this is the world's view of wisdom. See it, want it, grab it. That is the world's wisdom. And yet God says at the end of 1 John 2, 15 through 17, what it says is, but he who abides in the will of God. Godly wisdom is to follow the will of God, to follow him not our own desires, not our own wants, not what, makes us, not what makes us happy and fulfilled. Although God many times will give us joy and fulfillment, but we've got to find it in him and not in looking other ways and in other places. And so we need to look to God and do what he would ask us to do through what his word has told us, through what he leads us to do. We need to do what God has for us, not live according to our desires, but live according to God's desires. This is called humility. Humility when we put God's desires before ours. If you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that last part where it starts in 26, where it says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. And it continues all the way on. And it says so that in verse 29, So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is about humility. 
God's wisdom is humility in saying, I have nothing except for what God has given me. And what God has given me is Jesus Christ and him crucified and him rose again for my sins. That is what I have. That is all I need. I need no more. I need to follow his will because he has given me everything I need. That Christ Jesus is everything. He's our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He is everything we need and more. And so we need to follow him in humility. That is the difference between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. And when it comes down to it, what we see is what we just read in in verse 30. And it says again, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. We understand that the wisdom that we have is Jesus himself. Jesus is the wisdom of God. We see that in verse 30. That is the wisdom of God, is Jesus. Jesus brings wisdom to us. Well, how does that relate to what we just talked about? Well, Jesus selflessly gave his life to make peace. Jesus selflessly gave his life to make peace. That is what God's wisdom is. Remember, God's wisdom is selfless peace. In James 3, we looked at that. And Jesus did the same thing. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. We won't read that, but it says that he made peace through his cross. That Jesus died, gave himself up, was humble enough to give up everything so that we could have peace with God. So that our relationship with God could be mended. And that we could, want, we could have a relationship with him that would last forever in eternal life. Many of you might also be thinking of Philippians 2, 8. That Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That Jesus knew what it meant to be humble. Jesus knew what it meant to make peace. Jesus knew what it meant to be selfless. But not only did Jesus selflessly give give his life to make peace, Jesus followed God's plan despite his own desires. You say, wait a minute, wasn't Christ's desire to die for us? Yes, it was. His godly desire... But as you many of you know, in Luke twenty two forty two, Jesus is praying. And what does he pray to God? He says, God, if you can take this cup from me, take it. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. You see, Jesus in his humanity did not want to experience the cross. He did not want to, to die that horrible death. And it was beyond even the physical pain that he would experience. He also did not want to have to go through the experience of taking on your sin and my sin on his body. That was going to separate him from God. And he didn't, that was not something he wanted. It wasn't something he desired in his body. And yet he knew that's what needed to be done. And so just as the world's wisdom is lustful pride and God's wisdom is godly humility, following the will of God, Jesus is our example of that as well. And so we put all this together and we think about the message of foolishness, the fact that the gospel is foolishness to people around us. Because it doesn't make sense for the one who would save us, the one to be our king, the one who would be the ruler of the world, as we would say that Jesus is. It doesn't make any of that, it doesn't make any sense that he would die on a cross for us. And it doesn't make any sense that he would go through that kind of pain and torture and make himself less than he was. And so the world looks at it and says, foolish, foolish. 
You see, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what did we see here in the center of this chapter? It says in verse 22, the Jews demanded signs and Greeks sought wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There it is again. Jesus is the wisdom of God. You see, the Jews were looking for someone to come with mighty signs. Jews were looking for someone to come and, and ride in to save the day. Be a king that would throw the oppressors of Rome off their backs. That he would set himself up in earthly kingdom. That the Jews would be able to rule again. And that the Jews would be in control of the world. They saw their king as one who would deliver them from physical enemies. They were looking for a military and political leader that would come and set them free from the tyranny of Rome. We looked at this last week if you were with us. The truth of the matter is is that yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus came to defeat an enemy. But it was not Rome. It is sin and death itself. And as he rode, on on that, rode in on that colt, as we looked at last week, it was a show of his humility. Even though he was king, he was not going to be the political and military leader that the Jews were looking for. But then also it says the Greeks, or the Gentiles, so those who aren't Jews, seek wisdom. Who does the world say makes a good king? Well, look at it. it he's got to be strong and mighty and powerful and and run over people and do whatever it takes to get up to the top because that's what the world says is wisdom. And Jesus isn't that. Jesus didn't follow his own desires. Jesus did what was best for us. He, did, he died for us. He did God's will for us. That's not what a king is to, a, to a, 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 an unbelieving Gentile who's looking at things and saying, all right, if you're going to look for this, this king, who would he be? Well, it's not what Jesus was. Jesus didn't come in and he did not fulfill their expectations. He didn't fulfill the expectations of the Jews. He didn't fulfill the expectations of the Gentiles. Jesus, as the selfless, humble, peaceful, loving man who died for our sins was not what the world was looking for. And yet it's what the world needed. And they didn't even know it. And so today, before we get to our last point, we come together for Easter, we remember the resurrection of Jesus, we remember his death. Understand that that is seen as foolishness to some. And yet we should understand that it is power. Because there's no other religion, there's no other self-proclaimed God, there's no, nothing else that can ever give us any kind of peace or hope other than Jesus. Because if it relies on us, if our future, our eternal life, if our hope depends on our wisdom, the world's wisdom, then we have no hope. Because no matter how much you have, you always can have more. No matter how great life is, it can always be better. No matter how green the grass is, it'll always be greener on the other side. Fulfilling our lusts and fulfilling our desires and being prideful about our life and looking out for number one is only going to end in ruin. I don't even have, I mean, you, it's throughout scripture, but you can also just experience it. Watch it. Look around. How much has been destroyed because people are only looking out for themselves? And Jesus came 
And he showed that there's a different way. There's a different way to have wisdom. It's to love one another. It's to serve one another. And as we see in just a minute, it's to sacrifice for one another. And if you have not accepted Jesus and what he has sent to you today, maybe today you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm still thinking it might be some foolishness. Just really think and pray. Ask God to make it clear to you. Because it is the power of God to those who believe. Finally, our last point. If we've looked at the message of foolishness, the wisdom of foolishness, now the life of foolishness. 1 Corinthians goes on and tells us some interesting things. And, and really, this, these are some things that are convicting to all of us. The life of foolishness. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In this passage, we see something very true. If we, are to, if we believe the message of foolishness and we are truly pursuing the wisdom of God, then that means we will live a life of foolishness in the eyes of the world. We need to trust in God's wisdom, not in man. That's what this whole passage just talked about. That we need to not trust in what the world says is wisdom, but we need to trust in God and what He says is wisdom. And what is the wisdom? It's Jesus himself, that we trust Christ because in him we have everything we need and everything we want. We've already talked about that. So if you are to live the life of foolishness, it's to trust in God's wisdom and not in man's wisdom. See, men will tell you to live a certain way. Men will tell you to do certain things. Men will tell you that this is the way you need to do things. That you need to live for yourself, that you need to look out for number one, but that is not godly. Instead, we need to look out for one another. We need to love one another. We need to love God and put his desires before our own. That is God's wisdom, and that's what we are called to live in. It says, don't deceive yourself. If anyone thinks that you're wise, become a fool. These are strong words. Are you willing to be a fool? Are you willing for the world to look at you as a foolish person because you don't care about yourself? You don't care about living for number one, but you're looking out for others and you're, look, you're looking to live for God? Are you willing to be that kind of a fool? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that's what you need to do. Because you are Christ's. And we have everything we need and therefore we should be a fool for him. Second part of living the life of foolishness, over to chapter 4. Verses 8 through 16. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 16. And this is a little bit of a, condom, uh, a condemnation from Paul to the Corinthians. A little bit of sarcasm, actually, if you look at this. But he's trying to make the point here to the Corinthians that the way that they're living is not what the calling of the Christian really should look like. In verse 8, this is what we read. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share with, to rule with you. But For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, 
Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, or you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I want to stop there for a second. Man, Paul, he is... He become like scum of the world and refuse of all things. That's hard to take. Why would Paul be okay with that? Paul had so much more ahead of him, and yet he's okay with this. But then here's where it gets tough. He says, I do not write these things, in verse 14, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through Jesus in the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So wait, Paul, we're supposed to imitate you as being scum? Imitate you of being refuse? What's the point? Well, we need to live a life of sacrifice. He's making a comparison here. He's saying, look, you guys have everything the world says you should have. You're rich. You're like kings. You're ruling like kings. You've got everything you think you need. You've got all the world's riches. You've got everything you could possibly want. And yet look at us as the apostles. And he goes through this list of all the things that they've had to endure. And this is not for Paul trying to look for pity. Paul is trying to make the point here that to live a life of foolishness means that we need to sacrifice. That we need to be willing to be scum of the world and refuse for Jesus if that's what it takes. You see, we're in a world now in churches that preach a gospel in which says if you come to Jesus... Everything's going to be great. Your relationships are going to go wonderful. Your job will go well. You'll get raises. You'll have all the money you need. You'll have security. You'll have hope. You'll have peace. You'll have everything that the world wants you can have in Jesus. And in an eternal sense, that is all true. But not necessarily in this early, earthly, temporary time we have. See, by any standard, Paul's life would not be seen as glamorous. Paul's life would not be seen as comfortable. Paul's life would not be seen as living in the lap of luxury. And yet he followed Jesus. So what gives? It's that the message of Jesus that says, I'm going to put God and others before I put myself, means that sometimes hard things have to be done. Sometimes life is uncomfortable. And if you, if you don't know Jesus and you think that coming to Jesus is going to make your life wonderful and perfect and nothing will ever go wrong again, don't, because you're wrong. Life in some cases will even get harder on you in order to give glory to Christ. But the beautiful thing is we have Jesus by our side. Jesus who will walk along the side with us. Jesus who will give us strength when we need it, hope when we need it, peace when we need it, joy when we need it. All of those things that the world says it can offer but it can't, Jesus has for us. And Paul understood that and he says, imitate me. After talking about all those things that happened to him, be willing to give up everything and be a fool for Jesus. That is the life of foolishness. So in conclusion this morning, Do you see the gospel of Jesus as foolishness? 
Are you sitting here today? No, it's, it's Easter. It's a time we're remembering Jesus rose again. Some of you might be here that aren't here very often. Maybe you're visiting or whatever. I don't know where all of you stand. I don't know what you know about Jesus. I don't know where you are with Jesus. Are you sitting here today and thinking, all this stuff is just foolishness? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I would hope from what you've seen today that there is a God who loved you enough to send his son to live a perfect life, to die for you, to rise again, so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can have new life. Not a new life of comfort, but a new life of real hope. And if you're looking for hope, there's only one place to come. You can't rely on worldly wisdom any longer. Looking out for number one isn't going to get you the hope that you'd so desperately need. Coming to Jesus is the only place to find true hope for the future. Because he died for your sins and he rose again to show that sin and death cannot hold us. So today, on this Easter Sunday, make today the day in which you find your new life, your risen life in Christ. And if you want to know more about how to do that, or you're just having questions, please talk to myself, any of our elders. If someone brought you here today, talk to them, and they will show you what it means to know Jesus as your Savior and embrace the foolishness. Second question, are you seeking wisdom in the world, or are you seeking wisdom in Christ? Christ died and rose again. So who else would you look to? Why do we continue, even as Christians, to look to the world for wisdom? And we all do. Maybe there's one or two of you out there that don't. Good. That's that's great. But I think all of us struggle with this. We still are so tempted to look out for number one. We're so tempted to look at what the world says is wisdom and follow the wisdom of this world so that we can be comfortable, happy, and live the life that everybody's supposed to live. But that's not the wisdom we should seek. We need to be seeking his word. We need to be seeking Christ even if it means being uncomfortable, even if it means sacrificing, even if it means giving up everything, we need to be willing and able to do that. That is what Christ has called us to do. He died for you. He rose again for you. He died for us. He rose again for us. And, all, and why would we look to anybody else for wisdom? And yet we do. So that's a question we have to ask and repent of if we are looking to the world instead of Christ. And finally, are you living the foolish life that Christ calls us to live? I got ahead of myself a little bit, but following Jesus is not easy, comfortable, or selfish. It is a way of life of sacrifice, living new life in light of Jesus' resurrection. So are you, as they would say, being fools for Christ? Are you willing to let the world look at you and say, what a fool? Because you're following God's wisdom. You're following Christ. You're looking out for his desires. You're doing his desires. You're looking out for others. You're loving one another. You're sacrificing of yourself. And the world can look at you and say, are you crazy? What are you thinking? And you can say, well, Jesus died for me. It's the least I can do for him. That is the foolish life. And yet it's the life that will change hearts and minds as we preach the gospel, as we live the gospel, as we stand on the gospel that is the message of foolishness to those around us, And yet God, in other places in 1 Corinthians, I would encourage you to read throughout the whole passage, that God will allow people to understand who he is through his spirit. And when he does that, you can be saved and you can be a fool along with all the rest of us. So are we willing to live a life of foolishness? Those questions I want to leave you with as we stand and sing our final song.